We are jumping back into Ephesians this morning to continue our series there. Uh, We've covered the first two chapters and are now beginning the third, and it's a bit of an interesting place to jump back into. In in some ways, it's a very natural place for us to have paused and now to resume, and and in another way, it's just terrible. Um, And it depends on these first three words that we find in chapter three, for this reason. Um, Paul's making a connection uh, for us between what he's already said and what he's about to say. Um, He's already said for this reason one time earlier in this letter. It was back in chapter 1 after giving us a very lengthy list of all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. He then transitions into a big section of praise uh, and thanksgiving. Um, He says for this reason once again here at the beginning of chapter 3, but it's not as clear, I don't think, at least for me it's not as clear, the exact connection that he's making. Because he seems to lose his train of thought just as soon as he says, for this reason. And then it seems like he's off on another rabbit trail. Uh, He just seems so easily distracted at times. Maybe he is suffering from attention deficit disorder. He can't keep focused on what he's supposed to focus on. And so I've titled this sermon, The Easily Distracted Apostle. And I'll go ahead and spoil the ending for you. I don't think that's an accurate title. I'm going to attempt to cover six verses this morning to get us back into the Ephesian swing of things. So stand if you're able for the reading of those six verses. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray for the help that we need. Uh, Father, indeed, we do need help. Uh, Your Holy Spirit revealed to Paul the mystery of Christ. Your Holy Spirit gave to Paul and to the other apostles insight into the gospel that they then used to record even what we're reading this morning. And we believe that the same Holy Spirit now is available to us to help us to understand what has been written and recorded for us. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking for that help this morning. Would you open our minds? More importantly, would you open and soften our hearts and make them ready for change and transformation. Would you do all of this for your glory and for our good? We ask in Jesus' mighty name for this help. Amen. So please be seated. Um, We get a really nice snapshot in these verses of Paul the Apostle. Uh, If you'll remember, that's how he opened this letter Chapter 1, verse 1, he starts off, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so we see in these verses this morning a little more description of what all that entails, 
What does it mean for Paul to be an apostle? What does he do as an apostle? All right, so two things on the agenda this morning. One is to talk about the apostleship of Paul. And then secondly, I want to answer this question, does Paul indeed suffer from attention deficit disorder? Um, (coughs) And we'll all just take turns hacking and coughing because it's going around. Um, So as we tackle this first one, I want you to be thinking about Paul the Apostle in two distinct ways. Um, There are parts of being an apostle that are unique to Paul and the other apostles, right? Um, There's one thing that will be specifically unique to Paul and not the other apostles, right? So there's a unique category that I want you to think about, right? Um, And these things would not be true of you and me or any other Christian for that matter. These things would have only been true for the apostles. So that's one category. But then there's another category, things that are not unique, things that can and should be imitated and emulated by you and me. We should expect some overlap between the things that Paul did in ministry and the things that you and I ought to be engaged in in ministry, in being disciples of the Lord Jesus, ministering, serving, witnessing to others. Um, So maybe you want to, if you're taking notes in the worship folder there, maybe you want to make two columns, unique and and not unique. Or maybe you just want to do that in the back of your mind uh, as you you listen. So uh, as we look through these verses, you're going to be placing these things. All right, this was unique to the apostles, or this is something that I'll be doing as a disciple of Christ as well. First thing we come to, Paul describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus there in verse 1. Now, is this unique to him as an apostle, or is this something that he's modeling for us to do as well? Uh, And so this really got me thinking, right? Am, Am I a prisoner for Jesus, right? Is this some metaphor for being a disciple, is this, is, is, is this a metaphor for living the faithful Christian life? Uh, and you could take that and you could run with it if you wanted to and try to find some parallels and things like that. Um, if Paul was using this as a metaphor. But he's not. Paul's an actual prisoner. <laughs> At the time of writing this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome, Right? So in that sense, this is unique to Paul. We, we don't need to seek to imitate him. We don't seek to, uh, we need to seek to go out and, hmm, how can I be a prisoner? How can I wind up in prison like Paul? No, 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 we're not, we're not called to that. We don't need to seek to imitate him in, in that way. But there are two aspects of his being a prisoner that are worthy of imitation. Uh, and we'll be able to imitate them regardless of whether we ever find ourselves arrested or, or in prison. Uh, the first is this. Um, he wound up in prison because of faithfully carrying out the mission that God gave to him. He was in prison. You can read about this in Acts 21 if you want to later. He was in prison for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus to Gentiles. That was his calling. He only ended up in prison because he was doing what he had been called to do, right? His being a prisoner could have been avoided, but only through disobedience 
to his call. Right? So he was faithful. He was obedient to the call no matter the cost. That's definitely worthy of imitation. Right? I, I remember, and I guess I will forever remember, it's seared in my mind now when, uh, when Tim Cassie was here a number of years ago, the guy with all the, the dispatches videos that we watched, he was here for a missions conference, and he had this definition of being a disciple that is just stuck, it's lodged in my head forever. He said, being a disciple of the Lord Jesus is following him wherever he leads, no matter what it costs. Paul was being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He followed him where he led. He followed the calling that he was giving, no matter the cost. And I want to come back to this aspect of Paul's apostleship, his being faithful to his specific calling later in the the ADD section that we're going to get to. Now, the other thing about his being a prisoner that, uh, that we can and should imitate is that In Paul's mind, it's not merely obedience to the Lord that has led him to be a prisoner. It's also his care and compassion and concern for the Gentiles. He realizes that God has a purpose, even in the great difficulty he's experiencing and encountering. Paul realizes God has a purpose even in the hard things, even in the suffering. He says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. To to the very people that he's writing this letter to, he's saying, hey guys, I'm in prison so that you can come to know this glorious gospel, so that you can come to know Jesus as he's revealed in this gospel. There's a deep others-focusedness to Paul, to his life, and to his ministry. Yeah, ended up in prison, but y'all, there's a good reason for it. All right, these, these people, you're worth it, he's telling the Ephesians. You're worth it. Now, Paul will repeat this other's focus in verse 2. Um, so he's saying, all right, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you, you know of this specific calling that I've received, right, that I was specifically called to the Gentiles, to, to take to them the message of the gospel. And, and in that sense, yes, this is one of those things that is unique, not just to the apostles, but unique to Paul, the apostle. He was the first, right? When Jesus uh, gave his pre-ascension uh, instructions that are recorded in Acts chapter 1, when he's sending the Christians out on mission, he sends them out to these three concentric circles, these three audiences. He says, you're going to be my witnesses, number one, in Jerusalem, right where you are, right? You're also going to be my witnesses in in Judea, in in the larger region where Jerusalem is located. And thirdly, you're going to be my witnesses where? To the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's where Paul heads, That's where Paul is going to take the gospel on three, you've probably got maps of them in the back of your Bible, right? Three long, difficult, dangerous missionary journeys to the uttermost parts of the world, taking the gospel far from where the people of God are at their starting point. So in one sense, yes, this is unique to Paul. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, but in another sense, we can very much imitate what he did. 
Right? Did you see how he referred to his ministry there in verse 2? He calls his ministry a stewardship of grace. I love that. What does a steward do? A steward takes good care of something that doesn't belong to him. Right? It's been given to him. He's got possession of it, but it's not ultimately his to do with what he wants. Right? That's grace. That's the gospel. We've been given grace. We've received it. It's a beautiful gift that's not ultimately ours. We receive it, and it comes to us with instructions. It comes to us with responsibilities. Christian, you and I are never intended to be the end of the road when it comes to grace. It's always supposed to keep flowing through us. We're blessed to be a blessing. That's always been the plan. Abraham, I'm going to be your God so that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Paul gets that. He tells the Ephesians, this stewardship, this stewardship of grace was given to me for you. That's why I got it. That's why I got this gift of grace, ultimately, for you. God gave me the calling that he did so that you could one day hear of this beautiful and glorious gospel. So Paul was called specifically to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he was also, in verses 3, 4, and 5, we see, given special insight into the gospel. The apostle Paul was given a special understanding of the gospel so that he might explain what the gospel is and what it means to the rest of us. Let's look again at at verses 3 through 5. These are very important. (coughs) The mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Right? This is big, all right? We need to get this. What is Paul claiming here? As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, what's he claiming? Number one, he's claiming to be the recipient of a special revelation. He understands the mystery, and and we'll get to to the contents, we'll get to the mystery in just a second, so hold on there, but he understands the mystery because the meaning of it was revealed to him. He claims a special insight into the mystery of Christ, an insight which is new, an insight which was lacking just generations before him. But it's now been given, it's now been revealed to holy apostles and prophets. And this revelation we see occurred by means of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is describing, what Paul is laying out for us here is apostolic authority and function. This is what it means to have been an apostle. This is what the apostles did They were given special ability and understanding to effectively communicate 
the truth about the glorious gospel of Jesus. And they communicated it orally in their preaching, in their teaching. They communicated it in the written word. And so when we read the scriptures, when we read Romans, when we read Galatians, when we read Ephesians that we're studying right now, when we read the writings of Peter and John and the others, And when what they have written helps us understand the beauty and depth of the gospel, it's because they were apostles. It's because that was their job, that was their function. And this is why the Spirit had to be involved, actively involved in the process. That's what we mean when we claim that these scriptures are inspired. Peter himself tells us about it in 2 Peter 1. He tells us what that process was like for the Spirit to be involved. He said uh, the, the, the Scriptures were, were, uh, were, were inspired. They were written down. The, the human authors were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote down the very words of God. That's what we mean by the Scriptures being inspired. They didn't come up with this stuff on their own. It was given to them. They received it. And so, yes, this goes in the unique column. This goes squarely in the unique column, the not applicable to me. I'm not an apostle. I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. I'm not an apostle, right? This goes into the not to be imitated by me column, right? You and I don't understand the beauty of the gospel by receiving new revelation, but by reading what's already been revealed. Now, The Spirit still helps us in that. We prayed for the Spirit's help earlier. The same Spirit that carried along the human authors still helps us, the human reader. Helps us to get it. Helps us to make the connections. Helps us to understand what has already been revealed. Not by revealing new things to us. If if He still had to reveal to us new knowledge in order for us to get it, then that means over the last 2,000 years, the Christians who came before us were lacking something. They didn't have all that they needed. And I assure you, that's not the case. What they received was neither lacking nor insufficient. God has given to the church everything that she needs. Now, if you wonder what part of this is imitatable by us, if we don't receive new revelation and insight, we can and should be purveyors, messengers of what's already been revealed, right? The insight and the revelation that we benefit from, from reading what the apostles wrote, don't let that grace stop with you. Be a steward of it. Pass it on. Keep it going. Now, I told you we would mention the mystery. He keeps mentioning the mystery. Paul often talks about uh, the mystery. And I think this would be a good segue to get us into our question about attention deficit disorder. Um, uh, Paul uses mystery a lot in conjunction with the gospel. And he doesn't use it monolithically. He's doing a lot of different things when he says, mystery. Um, Often, he's referring to the way in which 
uh, this whole gospel rescue plan was unfolded and was revealed uh, in layers and in stages over many, many years. It started back in in Genesis 3.15, right? There's the very seed of the gospel. But if you look at Genesis 3.15, that's that's a rather obscure seed. That doesn't really give us a lot of details about how this thing is going to work and what it's going to look like. There's just this very tiny promise that one day it's all going to be fixed. But then we get layer after layer of additional information about this rescue plan that God is unfolding. He makes a covenant with Abraham, and we learn a little bit more there. He makes one with David, and we learn a little bit more. Well, I skipped Moses. Moses, then David. Uh, he tells us of the new covenant in and through Jeremiah. And so we get uh, this unfolding and this layering slowly revealed uh, of what's going on. That's part of the mystery that, that Paul is referring to. The timing of all of this, that's also a part of the mystery. When is this all going to finally happen, right? Um, and, and, so, and so we see that unfold uh, little by little. And then Paul's obviously got one specific thing in mind here in Ephesians when he's talking about mystery because he tells us as much in verse 6. He's saying, this is the mystery. That's helpful, right? This is the mystery. Gentile inclusion in the church of God, in the people of God. And what, I'll tell you, what he describes in verse 6 is radical beyond our understanding. It is provocative in ways that we do not get, right? The first readers, the first readers of this, would, their jaws would have dropped, their eyes would have bugged out. They, they would have had to read it three or four times. Did he really just say that? It's not provocative to us at all because we just sort of have it ingrained in our minds by this point. Well, well sure, anyone can be a part of the people of God, duh. But maybe we should be shocked. In fact, I know we should be shocked. Because I know that lots of people still misunderstand what being a part of the people of God is all about. And in reality, it's the same misunderstanding that was going on 2,000 years ago. We, we read in these chapters of, of the Jew-Gentile division Uh, of the hatred that existed, of the animosity that was between these two groups of people, how their existing in the church together was really a a sticky situation. But if (coughs) if we think of this only in ethnic terms, we're missing a huge part of the problem. Yes, it was an ethnic problem. Don't try to minimize that or explain that away. But it was not merely ethnic. It was also deeply theological and philosophical. Uh, I mentioned earlier and said that we'd come back to it, and I actually remembered um, Paul being in prison because of his calling, okay? His calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't preaching to Gentiles that got him in prison. It's what he preached to the Gentiles. The, the, the audience of his message was not the problem. It was the content of the message. Um, I mentioned to you Acts 21. Let me give you two verses out of Acts 21. You can go back and read the rest. Um, <coughs> Acts 21, verse 27. Uh, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that is Paul, in the temple, 
stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. The charge against Paul, the main sticking point, was that he was preaching against the law. He was preaching against the temple. Now, how was he doing that? And why was that so problematic and repugnant and offensive? Paul was preaching against the law and preaching against the temple by proclaiming a law-free gospel. A gospel that said, you need Jesus plus nothing. You don't need Jesus plus circumcision. You don't need Jesus plus the food laws. You don't need Jesus plus ceremonial washings. You don't need all these bloody sacrifices. That was shocking. That was provocative. Because you see, God's people, sadly, had developed serious tunnel vision over time. Right In all of their dutiful observance and obedience, they were blind. They could not see the Lamb of God because of all the lambs they were busy sacrificing. Got to sacrifice the lamb. Got to collect the blood. Got to splash the blood. Got to sprinkle the blood. John the Baptist shows up on the scene and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Got to sacrifice the lambs. Got to collect the blood. Got to splash the blood. Got to sprinkle the blood. Paul knew this all too well. Right now, don't miss the irony here right, that Frank even read about from Acts 8. the one called to preach this law-free gospel to the Gentiles, the one who himself was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, zealous persecutor of those who said, you don't need all these laws and regulations in addition to Jesus. You just need Jesus. Those are the people he was imprisoning. Now he's preaching the same law-free gospel. So to answer my kind of silly and hypothetical question, no, I don't think Paul had attention deficit disorder. I don't think Paul was struggling to stay focused on what he needed to focus on. I don't think he was departing from the task at hand. I think Paul was actually hyper-focused on something. I think Paul actually had one thing at the center of his attention, and he kept it there doggedly so. He was laser-focused on the law-free gospel, the gospel built on grace and not on merit, on Jesus, the spotless and sacrificial and substitute lamb, and not 
on religious observance and rule-keeping. And so we find Paul frequently, no matter what he's talking about, he keeps coming back to this. He keeps zeroing back in to what he finds most important. He keeps coming back to grace. Scandalous, amazing grace. He knows that, yes, to say that Gentiles will be fellow heirs, to say that Gentiles will be members of the same body, partakers of the same promise, he knows that's going to face some steep resistance. Right? Here's what you have to do. Put yourself for just a moment in the shoes of, in the mindset of, a very religious and obedient Jew in the first century. Someone who spent their whole life obeying the law. Think about all the sacrifices that they had made through the course of their life. All the times they'd gone to temple. All the meals that they ate that conformed to the dietary laws. The way they wore their clothes. The way they cut their hair. Right, All the rules so scrupulously followed. And now they're being told that these Johnny-come-latelys who haven't done any of that stuff, who in fact were in pagan temples worshiping false gods and doing all kinds of other unmentionable things, These people now get to be a part of the people of God? Shouldn't we at least get to put an asterisk by their names on the membership roll? Shouldn't they be junior members of the people of God? Second class Christians? Don't we get any credit at all for everything that we've done, that we've spent our entire lives doing? Paul says, the gospel of free grace says, no. No, you don't get any credit whatsoever. So that means that Jews coming to faith in Christ are going to have to acknowledge that nothing they had done previously, all their sacrifices and washings and kosher eating, (coughs) none of it had accrued any merit with God whatsoever. And y'all, that's what is still so pertinent today. Because people out on the streets, when you ask them about what it means to be a Christian, they've got this whole long list in their minds of the ways that they've tried so hard to be a good person. And they think that it has earned some kind of credit with God. But they have to do what the first century Jew had to do. They have to do what Paul himself had to do. Count that all nothing. That's all rubbish. None of those things earned me 
anything. None of those things mean that I deserve anything. Now, for the religious and the observant Jew, following all those laws wasn't completely pointless. There was some value there. It just wasn't earning value. It wasn't meritorious value. It was a value in that that should have been preparing them for something. (laughs) That should have been whetting their appetite for something. All those laws and rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices, they were signposts pointing ahead into the future for how Christ would fulfill all of those things beautifully and thoroughly and completely. He would provide the real washing that we needed. He would be the once and for all final sacrifice tech. He would be the priest, too, who offered it. He alone provided all the merit that we would need. So when Paul seems to start saying one thing and then gets quote-unquote distracted and goes back to the gospel again and again and again. He's not losing focus. He's staying hyper-focused. He's hammering home what he knows is so counterintuitive to us. What we continue to bristle against our whole lives. It's so hard for us to continue to believe. He knows that first century Jews were going to have the same struggle as 21st century orange burgers thinking that surely our good deeds surely our good behavior gets us some credit when in fact it does not we will never have hope in this life nor in our deaths nor in the next life in what we have done only ever in what Christ has done Let's pray. Father, in one sense, that is so simple to say and so hard for our foolish hearts and stubborn hearts to keep on believing. So would you help us to be like Paul? And to count everything that we think that we have done that amounts to anything. Help us to count that as rubbish. Help us to see that the only thing that counts for anything is what Jesus has done. That's part of the beautiful mystery of the gospel that we're all on a level playing field. That the ground is indeed level at the foot of the cross where we all come needy and desperate. Help our hearts to truly believe that this morning. Help us to be stewards of this amazing grace. Oh, Father, help us to not let this glorious grace Stop right here in our hearts. Oh, Lord, let our hearts be a channel. Let our hearts be a flow through. Scandalize us by this gospel of grace and then loosen our tongues to declare it. Do it for your glory. 
Do it because Jesus is worthy of being exalted like that. Do it, we pray, in his name and for his sake. Amen.